I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. We are going to start there and going to give a little bit of an overview of the book of Nehemiah. Um, But we're going to start in chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to kind of um, share with you a, a funny fact that I realized many years ago. It's interesting how things grow smaller the older we get and the bigger we get. You know, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a neighborhood. I grew up in a, um, I grew up in a very normal neighborhood over in Ashland, Ohio in the early 80s. And, and I would say it was a very developed neighborhood. It was an established neighborhood, if you will, uh, built in pre-World War II. Uh, so things were a little bit different back then. It was an older established neighborhood, but there were still a lot of young families. It seemed like just about every other house had kids that lived in it. And so there was always like sports games going on. There was always kids playing in the street, the side streets. There was always just a lot of youthfulness and a lot of energy and a lot of friends to make and friends to hang out with. But, you know, back in those days at that house in particular, um, we didn't have uh, our own driveways. We shared driveways. We had, um, uh, you know, we had front porches. We had um, large backyards we didn't, um, we didn't have attached garages where people could drive into their driveway and sneak into their garage. They had detached garages. And so community was a big part of that neighborhood where I grew up until I was 10 years old. And as I remember it, we had this huge backyard. When you're eight years old, seven years old, whatever it is, everything seems big. And we used to play wiffle ball in the backyard. We used to play football. We would have all kinds of sporting games that would happen with my brother and my sister and some of my friends and neighbors. And and I'm guessing if you're anything like me, um, those things that once seemed very large and those things that you, you, you once had an idea of what their size was, wasn't always the reality of how it actually was. We used to play all these sporting events in our backyards, and because we didn't have fences, our games would spill over into neighbors' yards, and it just seemed like we had all of this space to spread out and play. And as I remember it, that, that yard was large, but the older I got and the more I realized, I don't think that's exactly how it was. And as we grow larger, as we grow older, the things that once seemed big to us oftentimes shrink. And so my parents, they sold the house when I was 10 years old. We moved away to the country to four or five acres of property. And I sometimes dream of going back into that childhood home because I have a lot of memories there. And I sometimes want to go back and see what it now is as to what I remember it from 35, 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, when my girls were beginning to get old enough to realize the importance of understanding where you come from, I actually drove them over to Ashland, and we drove into that shared driveway. And that driveway used to go all the way through our backyard and turned into like a small alley that that adjoined to another property behind us. And I actually drove the car all the way into this driveway. I'm a stranger. I'm a complete stranger. My wife is like freaking out, like, you can't drive into their driveway. I'm like, it's okay. I used to live here. It's no big deal. And so we drove into the backyard. And as I was looking at the backyard and having all this flood of memories come back to me, I realized this yard is way smaller than I remember it being when I was a little kid. And I I remember thinking to myself, how in the world did we play all of these sports in this backyard in such a small, tight, confined area? And I think what I've realized over the years is that as I've grown bigger and older, things around me oftentimes grow smaller. 
Have any of you guys ever noticed that? Have you ever felt that or noticed that? Like the older you got, as you think back to your childhood home, as you think back to that that bedroom that you grew up in or that tree house that maybe your mom or dad built, maybe it was that corner market that you used to visit or a schoolroom or a playground, and it seemed like it was massive. But as you revisited it in your older years, it seemed much smaller than you remember it. Can anybody relate to that? You relate, yeah, things just seem so much smaller than they really, than they were when you were a child. And as you've grown, things start to appear larger because you gain perspective. And the truth is, is that those things didn't really change. It's that you've changed. And that's kind of how physical things in this life work. The older we get, the more things come into perspective and the things that once seemed very large become smaller, or the one things that once seemed very large become smaller and smaller because we grow larger and larger, but it's different when it comes to us growing spiritually. You know, in his classic novel, Prince Caspian, the the great author C.S. Lewis, he once wrote of an encounter that Lucy, a young girl who visited Narnia, many of you are familiar with the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy was a young girl who has these encounters with Aslan, this great lion. And after not going to Narnia for many years in between visits, Lucy gets the chance to go back to Narnia, and she hadn't seen Aslan in a very long time. And as we know, it's an allegory, it's a picture. Lucy is a picture of each and every one of us as children growing up. And Aslan was a picture of Christ. And there's this one or two short lines in Prince Caspian where C.S. Lewis gives us a wonderful depiction of what it's like to grow spiritually. And this is how it goes. Aslan said, Lucy, you're much bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. Not because you are. Aslan said, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And for a child to read that passage, it might just seem like, oh, that's just something that's passing. But for us, as we realize this is what it looks like to grow in Christ, every year we grow, Christ does not diminish. Christ does not grow smaller. He actually grows larger. Everything else in life tends to grow smaller through the years, but it's different when we grow spiritually. Christ grows larger in our lives and in our hearts when we grow in him. And growth in Christ is what we are seeking here at Crossroads. We want to see each and every one of you discipled in the Lord. We want to see you grow in your faith. As you grow in a deeper love for him, we want to see Christ magnified in your life. As you scale his depths, we want you to have a deeper understanding of him. As you search his teaching and his words, his teachings and his words, we want him to grow and grow and grow in your hearts and in your lives. We want you to see him as he truly is, not as something small that may Maybe he was when you first started out walking with him. Because this is what I can tell you. In my 10-year-old mind, in my 10-year-old heart, as I began walking with Jesus for the first time when I came to salvation, Jesus was very small and he was very boxed in. But the older I have gotten, the more I have journeyed with him, the more I have studied him, the more I have fallen in love with him, Jesus only continues to get bigger. And he's so different than everything else in the world. And so spiritual growth is something that is at the heart of everything that we do here at Crossroads. In fact, it's become one of our core values. We want you to know Christ. We want you to go boldly. But this week, what we're going to talk about is that we want you to grow together. And we want Christ 
to grow and indwell in you richly as you grow in him. We don't want you just to uh, just to fit God into your weekend calendar. We don't want Jesus to just be some sort of symbol of what you believe and the doctrines that you hold. We want you to place Christ at the center of your hearts and the center of your passions and the center of your desires in order that you may grow in him and that we may grow together and that Christ may become bigger in our hearts. But do you know what we also want even more than that? We want to do this together in community because we believe that growth happens best in groups here at Crossroads. We believe that it's biblical. We believe that Christ did not intend for us to go through this Christian life and this walk and this journey with him all by ourselves. He wanted it He wanted us to go through life and he wanted us to be discipled in groups. And so I want to talk about that. And I can, folks, I could share so many stories, story after story of how people, how community has edified me in my walk with the Lord, how people have challenged me and lovingly confronted me in sin, how people have encouraged me and walked with me when I was down, when I was out, when I felt defeated, how people have just really come along and taught me to understand better God's word. And I couldn't say that I am who I am without the community of people around me. And so we want to see you not only grow in your love for the Lord, but we want to see you do that in community. And when we do life together in community, we grow more rapidly. And God is able to do the miraculous things we saw in Acts chapter 2. We also can read in in Ephesians chapter 4 how the church, when it comes together, and when people walk through life together and they journey in their faith together, the things that God is capable of doing through us that he would never do or could do when we are on our own, this is the type of church that we want to become. And so this morning, I want to give you a picture of some people that grew together. And it would be easy to turn to Acts chapter 2 and talk about that very first church in Jerusalem and the things that they did in order to grow together. We could go to Ephesians chapter 4 and we could talk about that body and how it formed together and how they were united to one another. But what I want to do is I want to go the other direction. I want to go to the Old Testament and I want to look at the story of Nehemiah this morning. And I know many of you already know the story of Nehemiah. And when we read through his book, we oftentimes, we're reading into his mind, we're seeing him reveal these things, these historical events that happen from his perspective. And the book of Nehemiah is really his memoirs for us to read and to understand. And so when we hear the story of Nehemiah, oftentimes we think of, man, this was a great leader. This man was a great leader who had a passion to see God's city rebuilt. And we celebrate this man named Nehemiah, but oftentimes I think we forget the people that were involved in this story, this community of people in and and surrounding Jerusalem. And that's who I want to talk about this morning. Nehemiah was a man who was given permission by a Persian king named Artaxerxes to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. He was a a cupbearer to the king. He was kind of the last line of defense. He was, a, he was a bodyguard to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And, he, and God gives him a burden to go back to Jerusalem, a city that he never lived in, and rebuild its walls in order that Jerusalem may become great again, in order that God's name may become great again. And so the city of Jerusalem is in disrepair. Its walls have been crumbled for years and years, decades, really. 
because the enemies had come in and, and, and plundered the city and the people were taken captive and Nehemiah was a result. He was born into captivity and he decides he wants to go back and he wants to repair and he wants to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so when we study the story of Nehemiah, we love to celebrate his zeal for the city. We love to celebrate his leadership. But what we don't often celebrate is what God did through the people in this story. And yes, they rebuilt the walls and, and we typically celebrate the leaders because, you know, Nehemiah was the man behind the mission. He was the man with the vision. But I want to look at the backstory and I want to show you that when God's people get together, when they, when they do certain things together, they grow together. And there are three things in particular over the course of about six chapters that I want to focus in on this morning that show us what they did in order to grow together. And the first one is this. They served together. I want to give you a little bit of backstory starting in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Starting in verse 11, we're going to read down through the first part of verse 18. Nehemiah 2.11 says this. So I went to Jerusalem... And was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the, the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up into the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, who were there to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And so here's Nehemiah. He gets an idea. He gets a vision. He gets a, a zeal for the city of Jerusalem to restore its walls. And he calls the people together. He casts a vision and says, we need to get together and we need to do this for the name of God. And then we go on and we see that they serve together. Look at the second half of verse 18. And they said, the people said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. After Nehemiah paints this bleak picture of the situation that the city is in, he casts a vision for them. He rallies the people and he, he, he asks them to basically set aside your personal calendars, set aside your ambitions, set aside your desires and your dreams, and let's come together and tackle this cause together as a people. And let's restore the city walls and let's make Jerusalem safe again. Let's make it a place that we can be proud of again. Let's make it a fortified city. But they needed a vision to steer them toward this unknown horizon. And before Nehemiah showed up, they had no leadership. They had no direction. They were just a bunch of individual people scattered all over the outskirts of Jerusalem. Some of them inside of the city. None of them were really safe. None of them felt like they had a, a course of action. They were all just kind of individually living for their own goals, their own desires, and their own welfare. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah comes in and he gives them something worth sacrificing for. God's mission 
only advances, folks, when God's people sacrifice and serve. And up until this point, in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, the people were, were finding their own personal successes, but the city was not thriving. It was not everything that it once was. I believe that there's a lot of Christians that will find much reward in this life. There are many Christians that are chasing after their own desires, their own passions, their own pursuits, and they will find much reward in their years on this earth. But there are a lot of Christians that are going to miss out on a lot of heavenly rewards because they're chasing after the wrong things. Because they refuse to slow down and to serve something greater than themselves. They refuse to serve the mission of God. And I feel like I agree with D.L. Moody. The great evangelist once said this. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. I think there's a lot of Christians that are succeeding at a lot of the wrong things. And we don't have to fear much failure. But the thing that we need to be afraid of is that we're succeeding at the wrong things. And the wrong things are the things that build personal empires and not eternal kingdoms. See, we are here to build a kingdom. We are here to magnify the name of God. We are here not to serve ourselves, but to serve God's purposes for us. His great commission. And the church needs to value sacrificial service in order to succeed at the things that truly matter to God. And as we go on through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, if you've ever read chapter 3 of Nehemiah, what you read is story after story. There's basically a roster of people that are named, that, that worked on this portion of the wall, that worked at this fountain, that worked at this gate. 30 people, no less than 30 people are listed specifically. And it said, and so-and-so worked after this person. And -and so-and-so worked next to this individual. These people were working together. They were working with one another because they had a cause that they were willing to sacrifice for. And they were willing to serve. Every one of them brought some sort of value to the mission. Every one of them had something to offer, whether they were skilled labor or whether they were just hands that were willing to get dirty. They all offered something, whether they were peasant or whether they were priest. Folks, the body of Christ is an organism that serves a common goal. We all have differing gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about this. In fact, let's turn there for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read a couple of verses. These are some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible because it tells us how valuable each and every one of us are to the cause and the mission of Christ. And so I want to start in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it says this, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. We are one body, but we all play a part. We all have different roles. Jump down to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually what? Indispensable. I love that phrase. I love the way that's put because I think many of us feel like, well, at this stage in my life, I don't have much to offer. My best days are behind me. Or, man, God just never gifted me like he did Dan Fleming to play the piano. I never had a talent to be able to sing in front of people. I could never stand up in front of a congregation of folks and preach. Therefore, I don't really know what I can contribute to this church, to this body. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible says, God tells us that each and every one of us, even if we feel like we're insignificant, what we can offer 
is actually indispensable. We cannot do ministry without each and every one of you. This needs to be a church. Whether you're 13 years old in here or whether you're 93 years old in here, each and every one of us still have something to contribute to serving the mission of God. And it is not time to check out. It is not time to pump the brakes or to put it on cruise control. The people in Jerusalem, if they had just said, you know what, somebody else will take care of it. If everybody had that mindset, they never would have gotten those walls built. And as a church, we still have a mission. There are still more people to reach. And if we have the mindset that, oh, somebody else will do it, the skilled people will do it, the talented people will do it, the professional people will do it, then we're never going to be all that God has intended for us to be as a church if we don't contribute to the mission of God. Folks, growth happens through serving. When we serve one another, when we serve our community, when we serve together, we grow together and God fuses our hearts together. Let's look back at Nehemiah chapter 4, moving on a little bit further into the text. Verse verse 6 of chapter 4 says this. This was the attitude. This is what Nehemiah is saying further on. So we built the wall and all of the wall was joined together to half of its height for the people had a mind to work. Can that be said of Crossroads Church? Can that be said of this classic campus? The people had a mind to work. Do we have a mind and a heart to serve? When we do it together, God is honored and our people, we begin to grow together and we begin to grow in Christ. The second thing that they did that brought growth in their lives is they strived together. So they served together and they also strived together. You know, I once read about a story of the first time that President Kennedy stepped foot onto the NASA Space Center in 1961. He was going around taking the tour and seeing everything for the first time, having conversations with all of the employees. And he actually went up to a man who was a janitor who was holding a mop in his hand. And he went up to the man and he asked him, he said, so what do you do here? And President Kennedy famously was very surprised by the janitor's response because I'm sure he expected, well, I mop the floors and I clean the toilets and I empty the trash and I do all of these things. But he was surprised to hear when the janitor said this. He said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. You see, this man understood that he played a part. He understood that he was fighting for a common goal, just like the rocket scientists were. He understood that he had a very specific mission, and every one of them, even though some of them maybe made 10 times the amount of money and had multiple degrees after their name, they all played an important part, and they were all fighting for the same thing, to get onto the moon before any other nation in the world. He understood that he was striving together, Folks, when people fight together, when they strive together, it's amazing what God can accomplish through them. And this is what the people in Jerusalem did. They served the mission and they fought for a common cause. They were so committed to the mission that they were willing to take up a sword. They were willing to fight. They were willing to lay their lives on the line. And I want you to understand, as we read through the book of Nehemiah, many of you have probably read it multiple times You know how the story ends. You know they end up building the wall in somewhere around 50 days. You know that they find success, but understand what it was like to go through this. To be one of those people in Jerusalem, not knowing what was going to happen. They had no guarantees that the the mission would end in success. That they would have personal safety. 
These people had real opposition. They had people who wanted to defeat their cause. Folks, when the church of God threatens the strongholds of the enemy, the enemy always arises. When you fight in a spiritual battleground and when you advance on the enemy, when we take back territory from Satan, you can be sure that the enemy is going to resist and the enemy is going to fight back. When God's people advance, a a counterattack is never far behind. So here in the story of Nehemiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, they all heard what was happening. They don't want the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. They don't want the name of God to be magnified and worshipped. And so they want to fight against Jerusalem. And the people that were building up the city begin to lose heart. Because it was one thing to build. It was another thing to clear rubble, but now they had an enemy that an enemy that was starting to strengthen outside of the city, and they knew that they were going to have to fight. They knew that that was a possibility, and they began losing heart because they didn't sign up for this. They weren't soldiers. They weren't in the military. These were just average people that were trying to survive, and there was an enemy, uh, enemy armies that were starting to form all over the outskirts of Jerusalem. They were losing heart. And so Nehemiah has a solution that brought strength through striving together. Let's look at verse 13 of Nehemiah chapter 4. It says this, So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall and the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives and fight for your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with the one hand and held his weapon with the other. This is what the people got to. They got to the place where it's like, this threat is so imminent. The enemy is wanting to attack and they're so close that I literally have to hold a trowel in one hand. I have to hold a shovel. I have to hold a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. They strive together and they fought together. And when God's people, folks, when we come together for a a common goal, it unites us and it empowers us. And it also rouses up our enemy. But it makes us stronger together than we are on our own. And we see God work way more through we than we see him work through me. We are stronger together. We grow more together. Folks, who are the people that you together with in your life? Who are the people that you fight with? Who are the people that you fight on behalf of? When you're in that spiritual foxhole, in that spiritual battleground, and the bullets start flying overhead, who is the person that you want locked arm in arm with you in that foxhole? Do you have those people? Because if you don't, I promise you, you're missing out on some of the richest relationships that you can have. And God wants to use our togetherness in order to build his kingdom, in order for our protection. 
this is what the church is for. That we would serve together, that we would strive together, and then number three, that we would study God's word together because that's what these people did. At the end of all of the wall building, and we know that they had success in the very end, they studied God's word together. And I love what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you would turn in your Bibles there with me. The people gathered together and they, they had just seen this victory. The enemies had been thwarted. The enemies never did really attack. God had given them victory. The wall was rebuilt. They completed their physical tax, their, their physical task, but now they realized there was a spiritual task to be accomplished as well. They needed revival. And so Nehemiah chapter 8, the first three verses says this, and all the people gathered after the wall was rebuilt as one man or together. They gathered together into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So here is this congregation of people coming together, wanting to celebrate and wanting to worship. And they demand that that Ezra, they demand that Nehemiah, they demand that the Levites and the priests just read them the Bible. Because they understand in this moment, they had neglected God's word. They didn't know or understand God's teachings from the Torah. They didn't understand the prophets. They had completely moved away while they were in Babylonian captivity, from the words of God, which meant that they moved away from the commandments of God, which meant that they also lost the blessings of God. And they wanted God's word back in their life. They wanted to hear from God. And folks, I believe that God is not silent with us. And there's a lot of people that feel like, man, God never really speaks to me. He never really impresses upon me. I don't know that I ever really hear from him. And I would tell you that maybe the reason that you don't hear God speaking is because you haven't positioned yourself in a posture to properly listen to him. We don't slow down enough. We don't invite God to speak into our lives. We're so busy just going at our own pace that we don't let God speak to us. The people of Jerusalem, they were ignorant to God's word in this moment and they wanted to be reintroduced to it. So they listened to it read for hours upon hours upon hours, and they couldn't get enough of it. Think about that. The Bible says they read the Bible, the scriptures, until midday. Chances are it was at least four hours of just reading the Bible. Can you imagine if that happened today? If we said, hey, folks, tonight, come back at five o'clock, and we're just going to read God's word for six hours. Can you imagine how many people would actually show up? We've lost our awe and our respect in some ways of just the reading of God's word. These people wanted to hear from God. And I think so many times we prop up the preacher, right? Whether it's me or whether it's Josh or whether it's Pastor Dave, man, we want to hear a word from God from a man of God. I think sometimes what we actually need is instead of hearing from me, we need to hear directly from God just by reading his word. We need a more sure word of prophecy. First, second Peter chapter one talks about that more sure word, more sure than our experiences, more sure 
than what culture tells us. More sure than man's opinion. More sure than what is popular. We need God's word in our lives to convict us and to correct us and to give us guidance. Do you know what happened when they heard God's word read aloud? I love this. This was their response. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, is this ever going to end? Oh my goodness, this guy has been reading God's word. He's been reading from the law of Moses for four hours now. I can't handle any more of this. This was their response. I love this in verse 9 of of Nehemiah chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. These people were broken when they heard God's word. If you read down further into verse 10, and it says, Nehemiah says, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They were grieved again. And then verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people, literally had to calm them down, saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Folks, they heard the word of God and they were cut to the heart. It was like God was performing heart surgery on them because they realized all of their sinfulness and their wretchedness and they responded to it. Folks, when we study God's word together, there is power that comes from the pages of this book. It is his revealed word to us and we need to treasure it. We need to value it. We need to hear more from God. And I imagine in this moment, as the people are grieving, as they're mourning, because they're realizing their sinfulness, as they're hearing the words of Moses and the prophets. I imagine this moment, there's a great revival. And many of you have seen those revivals on TV. Maybe you even attended one. You remember those old Billy Graham crusades from the 70s and the 80s, and maybe even into the 90s, where he would fill stadiums full of tens of thousands of people. And then he would give an altar call and he would give an opportunity for people to respond to God's word and just droves of people would file onto the fields. Thousands of people would respond to God's word because they were cut to the heart when they heard the truth of his word and what Jesus did for them. I imagine this this kind of a moment where people were just responding one after another, realizing the error of their ways and their need for God in their lives. Folks, when was the last time that you read God's word and you were overcome or overwhelmed with emotion like that? Doesn't happen very often, does it? Folks, we need to hear from God. We need to be cut to the heart just like these people were. When I was 16 years old, I had heard God's word taught on the the topic of baptism dozens of times. Dozens of times. I had made a, I I guess, a profession of faith when I was a young child, probably about eight years old. But man, I was really doubting my salvation. And I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 10 years old, but I had already been baptized, even though I knew when I was 10 that when I was baptized, I didn't really understand the gospel and hadn't fully received it. But a whole church full of people had already seen me be baptized. So I went six years in my own pride saying, I can't get baptized again. Then people will know that I wasn't a Christ follower the first time that I got baptized. I was really embarrassed by that. And it it was a struggle for me, even though I knew that I needed to be baptized and follow in biblical um, teachings and be obedient to God's word in in that step of baptism. Well, it took one person, one individual to give me the courage to actually follow through and get baptized. It was my best friend. His name was Chris Herod. 
he was going through some of the same struggles that I was going through. And one Sunday evening, he had the courage, he had the guts to go forward during an invitation. And he knew he needed to be baptized. And when I saw Chris go forward, I thought, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. And together, we were baptized by our youth pastor. And it was a really powerful moment for me because I realized the importance of others in my life and their influence in my life. And because Chris had courage where I was a little bit of a a chicken, where he was humble, where I was a little bit proud, he gave me the courage, he gave me the humility to go forward. And I made that decision to get baptized And I couldn't have done that without his courage, without his leading, without his example, without being together with him in Christian community. Folks, I hope you have some sort of community like that beyond Sunday mornings in these pews. I hope that there are people speaking into your life where you're studying God's word together and you're growing because of one another. I have a core group of guys. It's a discipleship group. There's five of us and we meet every Thursday morning at 6.15 in the morning, and we study through God's word. And I literally told them just on Thursday, I sat back and I'm, you know, I'm the pastor. I'm the one that's supposed to have all the Bible knowledge and everything. And I'm sitting back and I'm listening to these guys and what God is revealing to them through his word. And I'm like, man, they are so much smarter than me. And I literally told them, I said, fellas, when I come here, I'm learning from you. You all are growing me. You are spurring me on in my own discipleship. Do you have those people in your life? Folks, when people serve together as a church, when we strive together as a church, when we study God's word together as a church, we are being obedient to what God has told us to do. This is exactly what happened in Jerusalem. They found success, they grew together, and their hearts were beginning to turn back to God. This is the type of church that we want to be. These are the things that we want to value. And many of us, you've been doing this together for years. You look around and maybe you've been coming to this congregation in this room for decades. And you look around at the others that have influenced you and you realize you would not be who you are today without their influence, without them speaking into your life. That is a beautiful thing, folks. But the work is not done. There's more serving to do. There's more striving to do. There's more studying to do. So let's be about that. Whether we have another 50 years in life, whether we have another five years in life, let's not quit being the church that Christ has called us to be. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father.